Be in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 31 through 37. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We come humbly before you as we think about your holiness that will not be compromised. We come humbly before you as we think about your just wrath that is coming. And we know that the only hope we have is in a Savior who has become a substitute, who has become an atonement, who through the shedding of his blood has been the forgiveness of our sins. And so as we stand before you, God, a holy God, we come not on any merit of our own, but on the blood of Jesus Christ knowing that we've been purchased with his precious blood and that we are no longer our own. This morning as we sit under the teaching and preaching of your word, I pray that you would make clear to us how much you love us, who Jesus is and what he accomplished on our behalf. And that because of that, it might attack and assault our very soul, reminding us that we are not our own, but we've been bought with a price, and that we may live our lives in such a way as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, that might bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, if ever there was a warning for those who attend church, for any reason other than to worship the Lord in spirit and truth. And John 19 is the text. You know, we've seen to this point how these religious folks have uh, adhered to the minutest of details regarding their traditions. And yet, while they are so meticulous about, well, you got to do this this way and this this way and this way, or even tithing right down to mint and coming, you know. Counting out the seeds. While they will do that, then they turn around and ignore the laws the Lord gave them that are meant to protect the innocent. They have formally held two illegal trials before rendering this contrived conviction, breaking one law after another as they do it. You know, and so while they will hold illegal trials while they will come up with a, a phony verdict. They will then refuse to go into Pilate's 
quarters there because, well, he's got leavened bread in there. And, and, and that might defile us and disqualify us from participating in Passover. Well, we don't want to do that, and yet they have no problem shouting crucify the one who fulfills the purpose for Passover. However, though they are making their own decisions out of the hardness of their hearts, they cannot thwart what the Lord has sovereignly purposed for the good of man. And to prove, to prove that Christ is the fulfillment of all the Lord has promised, that he is the one who accomplishes our salvation, The Lord has revealed in the scriptures over hundreds of years details that no man, no man can fulfill on his own. He can't do it. Fulfillment of 300 plus prophecies in only the Messiah is the evidence that he provides for us that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing in him, we have life in his name. Now, John says that's the whole reason he's recorded this for you, by the way. He'll say that in the next chapter, chapter 20, verse 31. Now, in our text today, beginning with the 19th chapter, verse 31, it says that since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, let me just give you some context here. The Romans, the... um, the Persians, the um, uh, uh, Carthaginians will leave bodies on crosses for days, for days, till, till the bodies rot and the vultures devour them. Why? Well, they want those people on those crosses to be uh, a display of their brutality in order to serve as a deterrent to everyone who thinks they can challenge governmental authority. They want everybody to see that brutality. You don't want this to happen to you. Or the government is going to make you pay for whatever revolt that you have against them. Now this all started back with the Assyrians 800 years earlier. Um, And 500 BC, you got King Darius of Persia. He's going to take the impaling of individuals like the Assyrians would do and turn it into a crucifixion. He's going to crucify 3,000 of his political enemies in Babylon. Then you're going to find even the Greeks will do this. You remember uh, Antichus Epiphanes, Antichus IV, the Greek, who uh, committed the abomination of desolation in the temple back in uh, the 2nd century BC? He crucified a number of Jews. But when the Romans come along, they modify what has been done by the Assyrians and by the Persians and by the Greeks in order to maximize the amount of shame and torture that these individuals will experience. And they too want to leave these bodies on the cross for days as billboards of warning that you don't challenge Caesar. However, the Mosaic Law called burials. You see that in the second law, Deuteronomy 21. Just as as Israel is getting ready to go into the promised land, the Lord gives them his law a second time. And he says, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death. Now, where does that come from? It goes all the way back after the flood when the Lord says, whoever sheds the blood of man. I gave man life. You took his life that, that I gave him. You took it. 
Therefore, by man shall your blood be shed. For the Lord made man in his own image. That's Genesis 9. So he's saying if you commit a sin deserving of capital punishment, you hang that guy on a tree, but his body shall not remain overnight. You shall bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. In other words, there were some crimes so heinous, the Lord said, capital punishment is necessary. I'm prescribing capital punishment as a deterrent to this type of, of abhorrent behavior. And in Israel, they stoned people and then they hoisted them up on a stake so that everybody could see that this kind of behavior is cursed by a holy God. However, man is created in the image of God. So you're to bury those men, not because they deserve it. You bury them out of respect for the Lord. The Israelites were not to defile their land by treating man the way pagans treated man. But to be hoisted on a tree sent the message, you are cursed of God. That's why they cried, crucify him, crucify. They want everyone to know he is not God incarnate. He is cursed of God. That's why Christ suffers for the first three hours on the cross at the hands of men. Before the sun goes down. And it goes dark at midday, just like it did in Egypt when the Lord's judgment came upon Pharaoh and he set his people free. Those last three hours, the wrath, that God's holy character demands before his grace can be experienced is poured out on Christ. He suffers at the hands of men that he dies to save. And he suffers before the Lord as the means for saving them. So during those six hours, we've already been told the execution squad divided his garments, fulfilling scripture. Lifted him up, fulfilling scripture. He is hoisted up with criminals, fulfilling scripture. He who is without sin is treated as a sinner, fulfilling scripture. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22, the psalm of the innocent. As he fulfills Isaiah 53. He took our pain, bore our suffering, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. In fulfilling scripture, Christ says, I thirst. Your mouth would get really dry to where you, could, you couldn't even speak, but he needs to speak. There's something he has to say here at the end. And so they give him sour wine, vinegar, that they give to him at the end of a hyssop branch. A hyssop branch? Where do we see that? Well, that's in the Old Testament. That's what was used to apply the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, above the doorpost in Egypt. It's that blood that identifies you as God's people, covered by the blood of one without blemish. That's what causes the death angel to pass over. The angel that comes to bring judgment. So Christ says, I thirst. And they give him that sour wine. 
at the end of a hyssop branch. And what does he say? To tell us die. It is finished. That's the word for the final payment of a debt. And then what does he say? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He wants everyone to hear that. As he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. That's what he told us in John 10. And then what happens? There's an earthquake. And the veil in the temple separating the holy of holies. You know what I'm talking about? In the temple, there's two parts. The holy place, the holy of holies, separated by a veil. It is ripped from top to bottom. Can you imagine being a priest in the temple that day when this happens? That veil is 30 feet wide. 60 feet high. This ceiling is about 28 feet at its peak. Double that and add a few more. Man, that's tall. 60 feet. And not only that, it's as thick as a man's hand. Nine to ten inches. Josephus says that a team of horses couldn't rip it. And yet it's torn from top to bottom by God Almighty. Why? Christ said to tell us, die, it is finished. His atoning death is complete. We, we now, sinners, covered by his blood, can enter into the presence of a holy God without fear of judgment anymore. That's why animal sacrifices are no longer necessary. We don't need Yom Kippur, day of atonement, day of covering. We don't need that any longer. That's why even today Jews will observe Yom Kippur, but not in preparation for the coming Messiah who covers sin. Why do they do it? Well, it's on the calendar, but it's, it's, it's just a time for them to contemplate life with friends, contemplate life with family and, and with community. It's still there, part of their religion, but it has no meaning or purpose anymore. That has been fulfilled in Christ. Thus, Yom Kippur is no longer what it once was. Why? Well, the veil in the temple is torn. Access to a holy God is now accomplished through Christ. Just as he said, no man comes to the Father but by me. Well, it's getting late in the afternoon now. Israel's days ended at sundown. The Sabbath is about to begin. We don't want to violate this provision in Deuteronomy 21. After all, we are very religious people. We are not to leave criminals on a tree overnight. Do you see the hypocrisy here? Do you see it? We have no problem murdering an innocent man. That's not an issue for us. We just don't want to violate this provision in the law that says we must not leave him on a tree overnight. Their hypocrisy led them to stage these mock trials. Not putting days between them as they were told in their law. Their hypocrisy led them to this phony conviction. This demand for crucifixion. That would lift Christ up instead of stoning him. 
And when they do that, of course, they fulfill the scripture. He said, I will be lifted up. They do these things out of the hardness of their hearts. And yet as they do them, they are fulfilling what the Lord has revealed in his word for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Now they are concerned about the law that they've been ignoring. So they want the legs of Christ and the criminals on each side broken. Which, by the way, if they get their way, that would render the scripture inaccurate. Well, we have to prepare for Passover before Sabbath begins. That's the day of preparation. That was the common term for Friday. This Friday is the Passover that initiates the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it is a high day, a holy day. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a week-long celebration that includes a meal called the Seder. And they, they would consume foods that reminded them and that were symbolic of the Exodus. Remember the first night of Passover back in Exodus when the Lord sends the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. It comes upon all of Egypt, all who are not covered by the blood of the Lamb. Judgment comes. And only those covered by the blood of the Lamb without blemish will that angel of judgment pass over. There's no time now for the bread to rise. Rise. Flee your bondage immediately. Do what the Lord says. Embrace the freedom he provides. The purpose for this feast is to remember the Lord's deliverance. Therefore, for seven days, that's the number of completeness of the Bible. He created in six days and rested on the seventh. For seven days after the Passover meal, they ate unleavened bread in remembrance of their haste, of how they got up and left quickly the bondage and death that was coming. And that's why leaven and yeast became a symbol for sin. It's associated with ignoring God's word. He said, leave now. You're to get up and leave now. Don't wait for the bread to rise. To ignore his word results in death. So, so Passover is a, is a commemorative meal of roasted lamb, bitter herbs, and unleavened bread. That reminds them of how the Lord delivered his people. And since this Saturday is a holy day, a high day, connected to Passover... Though they have no conscience regarding the crucifixion of one without sin, we don't want to violate Deuteronomy 21 because we're very religious. So if any Jew being crucified is still alive, they ask, please have their legs broken. Why? Well, because there was that little, that little shelf there that they could use, that they, would, that they would push up on the cross to keep their diaphragm open enough that they could breathe. If you break their legs, they can't do that anymore. And there's this gravitational pull that, that, that takes them down and they experience asphyxiation. I thirst. The Romans view this request as a form of mercy killing. So they're going to appease the Jews because they're trying to, to, to keep the peace. And so what they do is they take this iron mallet and they crush the femur. 
crush it. They even had a Latin word for that. Do you realize it? Crurifragrium. Crurifragrium. Crush them. Christ is on the cross six hours. Been there since mid-morning. Sunset is drawing near. They must convince the Romans to speed up the death of these three Jews so their bodies can be in the grave before the Sabbath begins at sundown. As a result of their hypocrisy, what the Lord foretold in his word for centuries will result in Christ dying at the very time that the Passover lambs are being slain. The Lord doesn't cause them to hold these mock trials. He doesn't cause them to break laws. He doesn't cause them to insist Christ be lifted up instead of stoned. Christ is The Lord is holy. He cannot cause people to sin. He doesn't even will for people to sin. But when they do, they confirm the sovereignty of our Lord in the fulfillment of his word. And that's true not only of these religious folk. It's true of even these pagan soldiers. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. You've got to remember, these are professional executioners. <laughs> and they come and, and they, they break the legs of, of, of this thief and they break the legs of that thief. And then evidently these were not in a straight line. Christ might have been either a little further back or a little further forward. And so when they come to him, they go, he's dead. He's dead. Yeah, but our job is to make sure he's dead. Well, sure won't do any good to break his legs. Breaking the legs of a dead man isn't going to do any good because he's not trying to push up and breathe. He's not pushing up at all, so why break his legs? He's dead. We, we, we are professionals. We've got to make sure he's dead. Why? Well, we don't want any nonsense arising about some guy pretending to, to be dead on a cross, going into a coma, and, and then once he's taken down and is put in the coolness of a, of a grave, all of a sudden to be revived? Well, if something like that happens, it'll cost us our job, it'll cost us our lives. Our job is to ensure he's dead. They would have broken his legs had Christ not already voluntarily given up his life. When he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, his spirit now separates from the incarnate body that it once possessed that evening in Bethlehem. And when that happens, the blood stops traveling through his body. Things begin to break down into serum and water. It's a grotesque thing. That's why at a, at a morgue, one of the first things they do is to drain the blood and add embalming fluid. But to make sure he's dead, these executioners pierce the chest cavity and post-mortem blood and water come forth. And obviously some will claim that 
Blood and water represent the sacraments of the church, water for baptism, blood for communion. And that works really well for sacramentalists. But is that really why John makes this point? Is that why he includes this detail? Or is the primary reason for including this detail proof that he is dead? He didn't go into a coma. He can't be resuscitated by the coolness of a, of a slab in a tomb. Those who come up with that kind of theoretical nonsense have to assassinate the scripture and call Christ a liar. And they do that in some seminaries. They do that in some churches. Christ said, into your hands I commit my spirit. The responsibility of these professional executioners is to confirm he is physically dead. When they pierce his side all the way to his heart, blood and water come out. And John says, listen, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe. For these things place, for, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. What scripture? There's lots of them, but let me give you two. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. John says, look, I'm an eyewitness of this. I'm telling you the truth. It's what I saw. How the scripture was fulfilled before my very eyes. When these religious folks began to request, demand that his legs be broken to hasten his death, they had no idea that their request would confirm the Savior's sovereignty. The request is the reason the Roman soldiers needed to ensure he's dead. And so while the soldiers break the legs of the two criminals beside him, I mean, it makes no sense to break his legs because he's not pushing up with them. So why break them? So what do they do instead? They pierce him, fulfilling once again what the Lord revealed in his word. First, in the law given through Moses, none of his bones shall be broken. Also, the word given through the prophets, they will look upon him whom they've pierced, Zechariah. By not breaking his legs, then piercing his side, as Isaiah 53 said, they prove, they prove the word of the Lord in Scripture is accurate, reliable, and true when it comes to to all things, including Christ. This is how you know that Christ isn't just saying, I am the Messiah. No, he is proving that he is the Messiah. John is at the cross. Christ said to him, behold this woman, talking about Mary, take care of her. John wants you to know this is not hearsay. This is not some myth that man created after the fact. I am an eyewitness to this. But why are you making such a big deal about, about Christ being dead and blood and water coming forth? Well, you've got to remember, John is writing at the end of the first century. By then, the Gnostics were infiltrating the church. Who are the Gnostics? Well, these are people who claim to have, have a special revelations, you know. And, and they said that, that, that Christ could not be fully human because anything of the flesh is evil. 
wait a minute, if he's not fully human, then how is he going to make atonement for humans? And then you have the, the docetists who take their name from, from a Greek word that we translate seems. And you have those folks that are speculating the crucifixion was an illusion. They said that Christ had a heavenly body that only seemed to be flesh. John wants you to know that's an outright lie. He was fully human. He physically died and bodily rose from the grave three days later. If he had not yielded up his spirit when he did, they would have broken his legs and nullified the reliability of Scripture. But the Lord foretold through Psalm 3420, not one of his bones is broken. And he even gave that to us in, in the Old Testament picture emphasized at Passover. As set forth in Exodus 12, 46 and Numbers 9, 12 as they are in the wilderness doing this. The law of the Lord through Moses says not one bone of the Passover lamb is to be broken. These professional executioners have no knowledge of this. They have no knowledge. They have no interest in fulfilling scripture. They don't even know the scripture. All they're doing is doing what makes sense. They just know it doesn't make any, doesn't make any sense to break the legs of a dead man. But to make sure he's dead, they pierce his heart. And in so doing, they prove the sovereignty of our Lord and the reliability of his word as he has revealed all of these prophecies so that you would know this is the Christ and knowing him have life in his name. John says, I saw it. I saw it. These things took place that scripture might be fulfilled. See, the Lord said back in Leviticus 17, this is, listen, years before scientists understood the complex and extraordinary life-sustaining properties of blood, okay? Long before that, the Lord said to Israel in the book of Leviticus, he's speaking to the Levitical tribe there, the life of every creature is in its blood. So blood was not a, a metaphor or symbol for life. It was equivalent to life. Where blood is shed, death occurs. So in Leviticus 17, verse 11, he says, It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. By the shedding of animals' bloods, they can't make atonement for humans. That's why they made sacrifices year after year after year after year. Why? Was that taking away their sin? No, it was preparing them for the one who would take away their sin. And John wants you to know that's what's happening here. He is fully human. So when he sheds his blood, it not only proves he's physically dead, it also fulfills scripture where the Lord promised new life to those covered by his atoning death through the shedding of his blood. So here are three things about the shedding of blood you can write down in your notes. Number one, his shed blood proves Christ is fully human. Number two, his shed blood proves he's physically dead. And number three, his shed blood also proves his work of atonement for man is finished to tell us die. Now if you have any questions about, well, I get it how we are justified by grace through faith through the shed blood of Christ. But, but how are we sanctified? How are these new creations in Christ going to, to live 
apart from their old way of thinking, their old way of living? How are they going to live in a way that glorifies the Lord with who they are and how they talk and how they live? How is that going to happen? Well, that's the reason the Lord gave us typologies. I mean, typologies are just symbols used to confirm truths as they are fulfilled in Christ. By the shedding of his blood, our sins are covered. That's what atonement means, by the way. Yom Kippur. Yom is day. Kippur. Cover. Cover. Atone. Day of atonement. Our sins are covered through his shed blood. And new life comes to us. Because there is life in the blood. But by his death, we're also cleansed of our sin, right? We're not only justified, we're sanctified. Paul tries to explain this to the church at Ephesus. When the Holy Spirit leads him to, to write, you know, Christ cleanses the church, his body on earth. How? By washing of his word. By the washing of his word that he might present the church without spot or wrinkle, but holy and without blemish. Look at verse 37. They will look on him whom they have pierced. That's a quote from the book of Zechariah that speaks of the day when a fountain will be opened to the house of David to cleanse them from sin and ungodliness. Zechariah 12.10, the Lord says, listen to this. They will look on me whom they have pierced. They will look on me. Verse 37 once again confirms the deity of Christ. See, John knows the importance of blood covering our sin, bringing new life within. He also knows the importance of water cleansing us. So when he sees blood and water come forth, I mean, he acknowledges all deliverance and cleansing from sin and its defilement. The covering and the cleansing are found in Christ. William Cooper understood this. That's why he wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Fanny Crosby, even though she was blind, she could see it. Jesus, keep me near the cross. They're a precious fountain, free to all a healing stream, flows from Calvary's mountain. Augustus Toplady understood it. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. So what are some lessons we can learn from this? Well, I think the primary lesson at least what I took away from it, is we need to remember that we are all responsible for the decisions we make. You are responsible for your decisions. No one's going to be able to blame the Lord for decisions of rejection that they made. And yet, though we are responsible for our decisions, none of our decisions, none of them can thwart the sovereignty of the Lord. 
See, these religious guys thought they were in charge of what was unfolding before them. I mean, it sure looked like that, didn't it? The circumstances look like it. They want this guy dead. They've got Pilate bowing to their wishes. And so they're going to have him killed. And when they do, Christ is lifted up just as Moses lifted up the Nehushtan in the wilderness. That bronze serpent that Christ said, this is one of the signs. He told us this back in John 3. So when they demand that he be crucified, the Lord is sovereign and how he is lifted up in fulfillment of Scripture. However, we need him cut down from the cross before sundown, so break his legs. Well, if they break his legs, that would violate Scripture. So when these Roman soldiers arrive, they do as they are told. They break the legs of the criminals on each side of Christ. Once again, fulfilling Scripture, he was numbered with criminals. When one asks by faith for Christ to remember him, when he enters his kingdom, Christ says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. And he was. He was. If the Romans had had their way, he'd still been hanging there for days. But that's not what happened. They break his legs. He dies today and joins Christ in paradise. When the soldiers see that Christ is dead, which fulfills scripture, no one takes his life from him. He voluntarily gives it up. Breaking his legs makes no sense. Therefore, they don't do it. Once again, fulfilling scripture. As given in the law of Moses, none of his bones are to be broken. Instead, they do what they think makes sense. These are their decisions, right? They pierce his side all the way to the heart. Once again, fulfilling scripture as given through the prophets. Religious hypocrisy combined with the responsible behavior of pagan soldiers are decisions that men make. And yet they still can't thwart the Lord's sovereignty. Can't do it. Even out of the hardness of their hearts, the Lord is sovereign in redeeming a people for his own glory. 355 prophecies given over hundreds of years. Not through one guy with his legs crossed under a Bodhi tree pontificating about what he thinks. Not some camel driver in a cave somewhere. No, this is given over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and fulfilled to a T by one to make sure that you could see that this testimony of eyewitnesses, that these typologies of the Old Testament confirm that Jesus is the Christ and knowing him you have life in his name so let me ask you this question do you know him do you really I'm not asking if you're religious I'm not asking if you come to church I'm saying do you know him your decisions can't thwart the Lord's sovereignty but you are responsible you are responsible for your decisions you are responsible to come to faith according to the scriptures by the grace of God to the glory of his name. So the question is, have you done that? Have you done that? If you have any questions about that, you can go to the connect table back here and I guarantee you there will be somebody there to help you. Uh, we would be glad to, to meet with you and to talk with you and to help you. That's what other families have done as I've introduced them over the weeks. I have another family to introduce to you this week. 
Uh, would Carlos and Janie Barbosa with their 13-year-old daughter, Adelaide, stand, please? Where are you? Here they are, right over here. Um, this family lives in Irvine, Kentucky. They're in Estill County, about 20 miles east of Richmond. They are originally from the state of Washington, where Carlos was a semi-professional soccer player and Janie a school teacher. As I read their testimonies, I thought how appropriate for this family to become a part of our family on this Sunday. You know why? Carlos's testimony is filled with the providential leading of the Lord's sovereign will upon his life, guiding, directing him through a changed heart. Janie, who became a Christian as a child, has been hungry and thirsty for God's word to sanctify her as she seeks to serve him in ways that, that give him all of the praise and all of the glory for her redemption. And Adelaide, who's just 13 but very gifted, very gifted at writing, she, um, she is very articulate in her testimony about how the Lord has worked through his word that she memorized throughout her childhood in the Awana ministry. And how the Lord took that word and brought about regeneration in her life. And as a result, she now has peace and has purpose for living. And this family, um, when I was visiting with them the other day and we were just, I enjoyed it so much that I think I stayed a little too long. Um, because I really, really have enjoyed getting to know them. And I think that you will, too. This, this Barbosa family is a model of commitment to Christ and his redeeming power. They're a testimony to that. And that's why I said how appropriate that it is today as we go through this text that this family becomes a part of our family. Would you welcome them, please? Stand with me as we pray. Lord, as we come to the end of another wonderful day of worship, through the study of your word, having seen the glory of your grace fulfilled in Christ at the cross, Father, we can't help but with overflowing hearts of gratitude say thank you. Thank you for giving us these details that confirm the deity of Christ. That confirm that he is indeed our Savior and our Lord who has reconciled us to you. And Father, we're so thankful that in him, knowing him, we have eternal life. We would just ask this morning that you would glorify yourself through each of us this week. Glorify yourself. For it is in the name of Christ our Savior we ask it. Amen.